1 Samuel chapter 19. Again, we'll read the whole chapter. On through to verse 24. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you, for he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Jonathan called David. Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So McCall let David down through the window. He fled away and escaped. McCall took an image, laid it on the bed, put a pillow of goat's hair at its head, and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillows of goat hair at its head. Saul said to McCall, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? McCall answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. He and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth and Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. When they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah, came to the great well that is in Siku, And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets?' 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The title for our message this morning is Isolation in Sin and Refuge in the Lord. I don't know, as you think about the word isolation, for me it's a rather scary word, isn't it? Doesn't it sort of carry overtones of aloneness in a bad way? For Saul, isolation is the end result of jealousy that led into hostility. And here at the end of our story, it leaves him isolated. Now, no one wants to be isolated. Plenty of us like to have time alone because in our alone time, we might find solitude or even refuge. But isolation, as we see in Saul's life, is when we've retreated deep into our sinful desires and plans and we find ourselves unable to hear from God or others. Isolation doesn't bring the peace and contentment that a word like refuge or even to go back to our theme uh, last year of sanctuary. Isolation is about us diving deeper into ourselves and finding nothing but our sin. So let's look at where pursuing the death of David brought Saul in verse 24, the very end. Look down again at that last verse. It says, He stripped off his clothes, that is Saul, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. Now, if we were going to film this as a chapter, this chapter as an episode in the hit series, First Samuel, Tuesday nights on NBC, we might start this episode of chapter 19 with an extreme close-up, perhaps on the face of Saul. And that close-up would move slowly out as we hear him perhaps babbling, saying something we don't necessarily understand. Maybe he's whispering to himself, or maybe on the other hand, he's shouting loudly to everyone around him. But we zoom out to where Saul is, we see he's lying on the ground. He's at the feet of Samuel, the prophet, the one who anointed Saul to be king of Israel not that long ago. Saul's outer robe has been removed and it's off to the side. This would effectively leave him naked in the culture's estimation what they would define nakedness as, leaving your outer garment. He would still actually have a covering on, but it it would be essentially like wearing long johns outside. Samuel's looking down at him. Samuel doesn't speak in this chapter at all. Perhaps we see David in the background looking through a window of the hiding place that he's found. A crowd starts to gather. And then the saying is brought up again. Is Saul also among the prophets? We've heard this question before. Do you remember it? It came up in chapter 10. Back in chapter 10, the question of, is Saul also among the prophets, was asked with a very different tone. See, here it's more of a tone of sarcasm, of almost like mockery. Is Saul also among the prophets? Look at him. Is this a prophet? Is this a man of God? But back in chapter 10, it was asked with one of surprise and real curiosity. Is Saul also among the prophets? Could this be the trajectory of his life to be used in a significant way for the Lord? 
But that Saul that we met first as the donkey, donkey hunter, do you remember? On his whirlwind adventure with his servant, out to retrieve the missing donkeys and return them to his father. When, we met, when he met Samuel, the same Samuel who told him he was going to be king, Saul in humility says in verse 21 of chapter 9, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is it not my clan that is the humblest of all the clans? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Saul began in his first interaction with Samuel in a place of humility. And now he's come quite a long way and has ended up humiliated before Samuel and the prophets. Who is Saul? Is Saul also among the prophets? Again, this question is no longer curiosity or genuine interest. It's sarcasm. It's mockery. And it's being said by people who know full well that Saul is the king of Israel. Is he the king of Israel? Is he being used by God? Well, people at the palace would say, yes, absolutely. We take orders from him. He is most certainly the king of Israel. But there's another king of Israel. There's actually two other kings of Israel in this story. Maybe we could relook at 1 Samuel as we've seen it so far and see it as a tale of three kings. One king who is the true king, the true sovereign over not only Israel, but the whole world, who is appointed a king who has walked out disobedience, he's walked out his own plan, he's had the kingdom removed from him, and yet he remains in the position. And then we have this other king who's in the background, who's been brought to the foreground through mighty acts of war, but as far as the throne goes, there's no activity as far as David's trajectory. Is he the king of Israel? Saul has allowed his sin to completely isolate himself from all the goodness of God in his life. So let's rewind now to the beginning of the chapter and take this one scene at a time. So sin in this story is like a hungry, roaring monster in the closet. And Saul continually feeds it. He feeds it with his thoughts and with his time. He feeds it with his desires and his planning and his scheming. And he ends up isolated. But sin is not only like that roaring, hungry monster in the closet in Saul's life. It's like that in our lives as well. So let's see what that looks like. You have an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. First, we're going to look at the first 10 verses of this chapter and see how Saul is disarmed by Jonathan's advocacy. Now, Jonathan is always a breath of fresh air, isn't he? Every time he shows up in the story, things are going to go a little bit better than they would have if he doesn't show up, right? I wonder if you have people like Jonathan in your life, people that you could turn to. I mean, it's nice to know that we have people that we can talk to when we realize something's wrong, but do you have someone like Jonathan who will approach you when something's wrong, even if you don't seem to realize it or bring it up? Because that's what Jonathan does here. And he does it not just for his buddy. This isn't just David and Jonathan hanging out, you know, talking about life and figuring things out. Jonathan confronts his father. He does it as a humble son, recognizing who his father is and wanting to honor and respect him as is commanded by the Lord. But he comes as an advocate for David and as a friend to Saul. 
His plan is about saving David from Saul. But when we look at the argument, we'll see he's not just trying to do that. He's trying to save not only David from Saul, he's trying to save Saul from Saul as well. Jonathan has not given up on his dad. Do you have relatives that maybe you've given up on in some way, shape, or form? That you kind of go, we're going to see them at the Christmas party, and I kind of hope that's just going to be it. Maybe it's because there's some terrible story in the background and in your history, or maybe it's just a matter of, boy, this person's never going to understand who Jesus is, and therefore they're never going to understand me. I mean, Jonathan gives us a pretty clear exhortation, even in this moment, that we shouldn't give up on people. I mean, Saul is so far gone. He is completely isolated from the goodness of God in his own mind and heart. And yet Jonathan still goes to him. You can imagine that after all that Saul's done in the past against David and Jonathan, that Jonathan might have just been content to say, you know what, I'm going to take a simpler approach. I'm going to kind of do like what my sister's about to do. I'm just going to lie to Saul. I'm just going to kind of like trick him out of his plan to kill David. But Jonathan isn't like McCall. He's not like me. He's not like those of us who would say, you know, Saul's a lost cause. Let's just give up entirely on him. Uh, There's really no sense in trying to honoring the Lord in this relationship. Jonathan instead, in caring for his friend and persuading his dad, chooses to do both those things in order to honor the Lord. Now his argument boils down to two things. Did you catch it? First, he basically says, don't sin against the Lord. David has done nothing wrong. You are the king of Israel. Be a righteous king. Be a just king. Do the right thing. Set a good example for the rest of us. Act in a way that is pleasing to God. Jonathan reminds Saul that character matters. Sin that is treasured in the human heart can convince us that either character doesn't matter so much or that what we seem to think is wrong is actually the right thing to do. Sin twists things like that in our hearts and minds. But it doesn't want us to think about the matter of our character before the Lord. It doesn't want us to think about what the Lord is forming and doing within us because it would rather that we indulge all the things that we ourselves have plotted already. Saul may very well have been convinced that in his hatred of David, he was doing the right thing, not only for himself, but possibly even for the rest of the country. Which is so backwards, isn't it? Because again, David's, or Jonathan's exhortation about David is, the Lord worked this great salvation through him. He saved us from the Philistines. And he keeps on saving us from the Philistines. But Saul is so far isolated from seeing the goodness of God that he's turned these things around. As though as he's hearing Jonathan's words, you can imagine him being like, yeah, but don't you think David's just really annoying? Like, like don't, you, don't you just kind of hate it when he's around? Don't you just hate it when he comes in and he, he does his little, he's playing his harp. And then he tells us all about the victories over the Philistines. He shows up with 200 foreskins of the Philistines right in your office. Don't you just hate that? Saul's thinking those things and he's like, this is the kind of guy we need to get rid of. And church, this is what sin does in our hearts. It twists our view of what is right and wrong and convinces us that we are the judge of right and wrong. Sin isolates us from right and wrong, and it makes what is right subjective to our feelings. How does David make you feel? 
to make you feel annoyed, angry, jealous, well, then he's bad because he makes me feel that way. That's what Saul's convinced of. So Jonathan reminds him again of his character. Then he reminds him again of Goliath, the giant that Saul should have killed in the first place. Not only has David done nothing wrong to you, but he's done so much good, first and most impressively, in killing the Philistine. No doubt Saul had either let that fact slip his mind conveniently, or else it was just a memory to remind him of his inferiority. And again, if Saul's thinking, I'm going to determine right and wrong based on how I feel, then David killing Goliath was a wrong thing because it made me feel less. We can't relate to this at all, right? Sin isolates us from seeing the goodness of God. It isolates us from understanding right and wrong. And yet, to our surprise, Jonathan is successful, at least for a moment. Saul listens to him. He's temporarily disarmed. His evil plans are not going to come to pass, at least right now. Saul even makes an oath. Did you catch that? (coughs) Excuse me. Still working on that cold. He makes an oath and he says, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Now, this is, this is, the contemporary version of this is God told me. And we've talked about this phrase before, haven't we? When we throw out this phrase, you know, God told me that this is what you need to do. Or God told me that this was going to happen. Or God told me, God told me. And then what happens when it doesn't come to pass? I mean, if we follow the, the law in Deuteronomy, we should probably kill you. <laughs> You're a false prophet, right? I mean, Saul makes this oath and he says, as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Now, here's the funny thing. He's right. David isn't put to death. But that's not coming from Saul truly receiving what Jonathan has said. It's us looking at it going, hey, ironically, Saul is doing more than he knows. And he's actually telling us the truth. But he's not telling us the truth that he believes or the truth that he is promoting. But for a while, things seem to go a little bit better. Saul sees David go out and take out the attacking Philistines, though. In verse 8, we have that phrase, war began again. There was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines. And you can kind of imagine, again, if we're filming this as a TV show, from Saul's perspective, that you kind of see it in slow motion. David grabbing his sword, grabbing his gear, running out there. He was doing that slow motion action shot. And Saul's in the background. He's like, I just hate this guy. Saul himself is apparently not going to war anymore. And certainly he doesn't need to. And you can kind of imagine that the soldiers probably don't want him to. I imagine they like David as their commander much more than Saul. But as David is running out the door, I'm going to go kill all those Philistines. Saul's perceiving that and going, ugh, that David, I sure would like to kill him. Now, as we put ourselves in Saul's shoes here, I imagine, and let's be honest, I I hope and I believe none of us come into church this morning with serious murderous intent in our hearts, right? The person who perhaps you might be thinking of that that jealousy kind of has, has appeared in your heart, if even for a moment, hasn't driven you to a place of saying, you know, if I just killed that person, then then the problem would be solved. But that's where we kind of find this distinction here. Saul's the king. He can, in his estimation, do whatever he wants. We are not royalty. 
least not here on this planet. We cannot just do whatever we want. But this is where the words of Jesus in saying things like, whoever hates his brother wrongfully in his heart has committed murder against him already. So again, don't let stories like Saul's anger and his desire to kill David go over your head as though it doesn't have anything to do with you. Because there's a lot to do with me. There's a lot to do with the sinful heart. And it's a lot to do with the isolation that comes from it. Well, his thoughts are still bent on killing David, of course. And when David's success continued, that monster in Saul's closet became all the hungrier. And because it was already there in his heart, the door was open. And so we have this, again, this mysterious verse. If you go to verse 9, a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. Now notice this. The spear doesn't show up in his hand because of the harmful spirit. Okay? Now, remember, we've pointed this out. The harmful spirit comes from where? The Lord. Lord doesn't have harmful spirits. He has nice spirits. Yeah, don't forget, the Lord is good, and he only does good. But he is the good king over all, right? Martin Luther, I've quoted him before on this, but Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. He doesn't do anything off the leash. If you go back to the book of Job, it is God who brings up Job to Satan and says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan's like, well, yeah, of course he's good because you give him all these good things, but take those things away and he'll curse you to his face. And God says, okay, take the things away then. Let's see what happens, right? God is in charge in the spiritual realm and the physical realm all over, right? He is sovereign over all. And so, yes, he does send this harmful spirit, but he doesn't send a harmful spirit to a humble king. He sends the harmful spirit to a king who is sitting on his throne with his spear in his hand already waiting for David to come back. And as David comes back, the Lord even gives Saul that audience with David, in a sense, by bringing that harmful spirit. And we've seen this before. The harmful spirit comes. Nothing can calm Saul down. So what do they do? They call David. David, come play that song he likes. Come help him calm down a little bit. Now, David's one of those persons who's so talented in so many different ways that you can imagine that as David comes in and he sets his sword down and he picks up his lyre and he goes to sit down and play, that Saul's also thinking like, yeah, we know you're a great warrior and you're a great musician. I bet you have a really good personality too. You know, like, what else, right? Like, Saul has so much ammunition and fuel to tighten that grip around that spear and leave plenty of room open for that harmful spirit to come and torment him over the sin that he keeps feeding. So he tries to kill David again. I mean, by this time, David gets it. I'm sitting in the palace. Saul's on the throne. I see the spear in his hand. Look, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try to help you calm down a little bit here. But I know that if that spear raises up, I'm out of here. So naturally, Saul misses yet again. And David, in this case, doesn't just say, I think the king had a bad day. He says, I think I'm getting out of here and not coming back. Something is different here about this. Jonathan was able to calm Saul down for a time, but Jonathan was not able to change Saul's heart. So how do you respond when someone speaks to you about your sin? It's kind of a big question. Maybe we don't have those times that much, but what about those times that your boss calls you to talk about an error on that report that you turned in? 
Or what about when your spouse sits down to talk to you about the way you handled something or the way you perhaps didn't handle something? You know that one, that, hey, can you come sit down? We need to talk. I mean, it's those kind of phrases that when you know what's coming after that, we can already kind of be gripping the spear in our hearts. That hostility that we talked about last week can just be fed so easily when we think we know what's coming, when we think our ways are not going to come to pass the way we'd like them to. This is where Saul is. So one way that sin isolates us from the good counsel of others is by convincing us that shutting down in conversation is a good way to go. You know, when you just kind of nod and say, "Mm mm-hmm, yep, whatever you say, Uh uh-huh, okay, sure, when is this over? Are we done yet? Can I leave? Can I hang up? Can I go? Can I get back to work? You may feel temptation to say all the right things just so that you can keep your sin safe in its closet. Just so you can end the conversation and, and try to passively convince the person that you heard them and that everything's going to be okay. So sin isolates us. It isolates us so that it, it can remain safely in our hearts. Have you ever seen a deep sea anglerfish? They're those uh, really hideous looking fish. They have teeth kind of like jutting out in every different direction. But the thing that really stands out with the anglerfish in the deep sea is that in the center of the face, there's that little bioluminescent light bulb on the end of a stick, right? Finding Nemo, right? Yeah, right. Which actually has, it's, it's a great scene because uh, Dory and Marlon, I can't remember if they're together or not, they're in the, the deep, deep sea. It's pitch black, and they see this light, and they're fascinated by it, and they're drawn to it. It's a little tactic of this anglerfish. Well, these anglerfish, they don't move too much. They're very, very slow. There's, you know, it's kind of like this, their strategy is sort of like, I'm going to let my meal come to me. You know, they're, they're the ones that are always ordering Uber Eats in the deep blue sea. And as they're just kind of standing there and letting their little light shine, they're drawing these smaller undersea creatures to this light, and they're hoping to find food. They're hoping to find satisfaction, the things that they're looking for in the deep, dark sea. But they end up becoming a meal for the anglerfish, of course. And any fish that might be lured by the bright light doesn't have the benefit of warning from their friends. Nobody says, hey, wait, stop, don't go towards the light. They're free to wander right in to the isolation that the anglerfish draws them into. You know, our culture for a long time has been moving more and more deeply into the matter of individualism. And therefore, because of that individualism, we lean more and more into isolation by necessity as well. And so in that isolation, then the sin-sick heart finds greater opportunities to indulge in those human desires, those fallen human desires. When Saul sat on the throne where he should have enjoyed the presence of the Lord. Instead, he was isolated from it and from and under sin's control. Like the light of the anglerfish, it led Saul to throw the spear at David yet again. One of the craziest things about the anglerfish is that no two of them have the same hardware. Like they don't have like the same length of you know, rod sticking out of their head, the same size bulb or the same crazy angles of teeth. If you look up anglerfish online, there's so many different kinds and different colors and all these things. Uh, but they're, they have their, their shorter or longer rods, their brighter or dimmer lights, and their various colors and teeth patterns. They have these specific tool sets to get 
at specific kinds of prey. Sin is not just a one-size-fits-all for all of us, is it? The sin in our hearts and our longing for sin, we've, we've catered a specific menu to ourselves. There are certain temptations that for one person you say, that's the furthest thing from my mind. I don't know if I've ever even indulged in that regard whatsoever. And then for another person, it's I can't get free of this one thing entirely or at all. Well, that's Saul rejecting Jonathan's advocation. Let's look at his anger at McCall's deception. David takes his lyre and goes home. Of course he does, wouldn't we all? He's not thinking that Saul's just having another, another bad day. He's saying, hey, Jonathan gave me a warning. I know things are a little bit different right here. Clearly Saul's not listening to Jonathan, so we got to get out of here. Well, McCall, somehow his, his wife, this is McCall, is Saul's daughter and David's wife. And she finds out that her dad's men are watching their home. And they're waiting to kill David, so McCall helps them sneak out the window. And she does something we've seen copied by the likes of Ferris Bueller and other um, teen house escapees. So she takes the household idol, a little statue that would have been used for worship, which is an interesting thing here too, because David's not an idol worshiper as far as we know, but apparently McCall is. So she takes the idol, sticks him in David's bed, puts the goat hair at the top on the pillow, and voila, you've got the deception. Which naturally doesn't last too long. She plays it off that David is sleeping because he's sick. So Saul sends men to go and say, hey, look, bring him in his bed to me that I may kill him. This is interesting. We don't know how significant this is, but the language of Saul talking about killing David from the beginning in verse one says they should kill David. He talked to Jonathan and his servants that they should kill him. But now it turns to, I'm going to kill him. Bring him here that I may kill him. In one sense, it seems like there's a, He's stoking the fire even more. He's saying, it's not going to satisfy me enough to just know he's dead. It's very possible that in Saul's mind right now, he's saying, I want to do it. I will not be satisfied unless I am a, an active part of, Saul, of David's demise. Well, ultimately, he says, hey, you got to bring him to me. Saul shows up and talks to McCall and says, hey, why'd you lie to me? My enemy was here. It's interesting, he doesn't say, why'd you lie to me about your husband? He says, why'd you lie to me about my enemy? In Saul's view, McCall is his daughter, should be on his side, but it's as if he's forgotten that he's given her in marriage over to David, and, and McCall is really no longer part of Saul's family like she was before. She's part of David's family. She's in every way on David's side, and yet he seems surprised. Why did you give him away? Why'd you let him escape? And then McCall in a very tragic kind of way, lies to her father about what David said. Did you pick up on that? Do you notice, again, David never says anything in this passage, much less did he say, hey, McCall, I'm going to kill you if you don't help me, help me get out of here, right? So McCall compounds deception with the further lie, which you could say the first deception wasn't necessarily wrong, per se, I don't know. But secondly, telling this straight-up lie about David, I mean, it, it, it strikes against David's character, and it inflames Saul's anger all the more. Apparently, McCall is more afraid of her father than the God of all truth. So then we see another way that sin isolates Saul. His daughter doesn't trust him. His daughter fears him. And she carries on his sinful ways of dealing with things. Her version is lies and deception. Seems to be what she's all about. If you need to trick somebody, go talk to McCall. She knows how to do it. 
What are we passing on to our kids? Kind of a heavy question. I think the moments that we notice, the things that our kids do that we do, are almost always the things we don't want them to do, right? Like, you hear, you hear your older child talking to the younger child, why are you doing this? You know, with this kind of tone, and you go, where did that come from? Oh, I know exactly where that came from. Sounds really familiar. Yeah. So that's McCall. Now let's go to the last section, verses 18 through 24, as Saul is humiliated by the Spirit of God. This is the final scene of the chapter. David goes to Samuel, apparently looking for spiritual counseling and direction. They end up going to a place called Nioth, which seems to be a place of refuge somewhere in Ramah. And Saul sends three groups of men to bring David back to him. As each group approached Samuel and the other prophets, they end up prophesying, which is a really mysterious thing. The Bible doesn't give us an explanation of exactly what's going on here. So we need to remember that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. It's not most important that we understand what prophesying is here, but we, that we understand that God is in one mysterious and supernatural way taking over the mind and faculties of these servants and stopping them from carrying out Saul's wishes in order to defend David. And it's kind of humorous. As you read it, you see one group stopped and because they were prophesying, so Saul sent another, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent a third group, and they also prophesied. See, what's happening here is Saul is running into a brick wall. He's realizing that he can get past Jonathan's advice. He can remove that far from his mind. He can ignore and forget about McCall's deception and all the anger that it caused him. He can get past that and keep moving towards his goal. But when it comes to the fact that God decides to stop us from continuing our sinful track, there's nothing we can do. Saul is running headlong as fast as he can into a brick wall, and he's going to end up on the ground, naked, prophesying, and ashamed. Again, we don't know exactly what this kind of prophecy is. The Bible tells us, usually when the Bible talks about prophecy, it's not always talking about foretelling the future, but rather more more so um, foretelling the word of God, the message of God to the people of God. So it may be that these men, and including Saul as well, might have just been prophesying and saying, hey, what we're doing is wrong. God is telling us this is not what we should do. Maybe they were just praising God for his holiness and his righteousness. We don't really know. But they're incapacitated. They're useless for Saul's plan. Even though Saul had this moment of, if you want something done right, and goes off himself, he himself becomes an embarrassing mess on the ground. Now this is interesting because it's, Something of a mere image of the first instance of Saul meeting Samuel. He was looking for the seer, as Samuel was called then, wanting to know if he could hear from the Lord regarding his dad's donkeys. And now he's asking around again for Samuel. And instead of an expression of humility on his part, who am I? I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm from the lowliest clans. Instead of that, instead of humility, he ends up humiliated. And this is truly what in one sense, our call in regards to dealing with sin amounts to us either humbling ourselves before the Lord and receiving his grace or being humiliated by his holiness and his power. 
Saul faced that option, and we know which one he chose. And yet, in his humiliation, he finds by the same Spirit of God who was upon him to lead Israel and empowered him to lead effectively, that same Spirit has now isolated him from the Lord in some mysterious way. He hasn't been able to hear from the Lord. He hasn't been able to hear from the truth of God. He's been able to hear from harmful spirits. He's been able to block out the voice of Jonathan. But at this moment, as the Spirit of God finally slams him to the ground and says, enough is enough, you're done, Saul's faced with the fact that he has isolated his heart from the voice of the Lord, even in the moment that he's proclaiming the word of the Lord in a mysterious way. Is Saul among the prophets? Is Saul king of Israel? I think the answer at this point is clear no. He may hold the office. His term is not up yet. But he's become isolated in his sin. The Lord has been very clear with him about everything from the beginning. And in in Saul's desire to rid himself of David, the one who saved the nation, who won the friendship of his son, the hand of his daughter in marriage, He's realizing that he's isolating himself from the goodness of God. So church, today we have to ask ourselves a pretty tough question. Are we isolated from the Lord? From his people? From his word? Are we isolated from prayer? From the work of the spirit in our hearts? Have we been feeding the sin monster in the closet of our hearts? Have we been ensnared by the atrocious anglerfish of sin? Are we so set on our own path, maybe even with things that are actually good, but can we perhaps find ourselves realizing that we've focused so much on them that our own plans have taken priority over the closeness of our God, of listening to his voice, of taking time in prayer with our Heavenly Father, over loving his people, perhaps. Saul, in all the evil of his heart, he may have thought he was doing the right thing. That's part of the big tragedy with Saul. We too might think we're doing the right thing because we're keeping our head down and we're still working hard and we're still pressing into that thing, but we might realize that after a day, after a week, after a month, we've spent little to no time with the God who has called us to submit our whole lives to him. How have you kept yourself aware of and engaged with the Lord this past week? You know, if Saul took a moment to stop and speak with the Lord at any point in this chapter, things might have turned out very differently. He may not have ended up where we started with him, a slobbering mess in the ground. Instead of running to God as a loving father, Saul ran into him as if into a brick wall at full force. And if we live lives that continually push God's voice to the background, and continually feed the monster in the closet, we will not be able to escape the God who is everywhere, but we will run full force, head first, into his presence and can only hope for mercy and grace. And that is what Christ offers. We should be warned of Saul's story, though, church. If we keep sin in our hearts, if we hold tightly to the things that we love that God hates, or even trying ourselves to tie ourselves to our own plans and isolating ourselves from the Lord, there are great consequences for that. But 
again, the promise of Christ, the hope of Christ is that he offers us a refuge. He offers us the opposite of isolation, where we are set apart by ourselves, to ourselves and our sin. Christ wants to bring us out of that into a refuge where we are in his presence and where we can experience the goodness of God clearly. Christ came to a world full of Saul's. He came to break the bondage of sin in our hearts. He came to preach freedom to those that are captive to their own hostility. He came to call those who would listen and be humbled by the words of life, by the words of his great love for us, church. And just like David, Jesus was rejected. He was treated as a fugitive. And yet he, unlike David, wasn't on the run from his enemies. He ran towards his enemies. He ran to them in order to save them, to bring us out of our isolation and to bring us into the refuge of God's love. So just as God was merciful and amazingly patient with Saul, so he has been with us. I remember back a couple weeks ago to uh, Pastor John preaching um, from 1 Peter chapter 3, Pastor John from Grace Church, Grace Community Church. And one of the things that especially stood out to me in his message about what Christ has done with our sins was verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3, where he says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is what Christ has come to do, to bring us out of our isolation, to bring us to his presence, to bring us to the goodness of who he is, to find refuge in him. So how do we do that? How do we find refuge in the Lord today? We didn't talk much about David's perspective here today. Again, he didn't really even talk much in the story. But he needed refuge in the Lord, didn't he? Jonathan and McCall bought him a little bit of time. But when he came to Naoth and he knew the Lord was with him, and he knew for all the striving of Saul, there was nothing Saul could do to thwart God's plans, David was able to find that refuge of God and resting in him. Now, interestingly, Psalm 59 is given to us as a psalm that David wrote in response to this story. And in the end, he says, in contrast to the overwhelming opposition of Saul and all of his forces going against him, he says, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Strength, a fortress, steadfast love, a refuge. Has the Lord been this for you this past week? He may let us be in our isolation for a time. It may be better that we hear his voice today and offer ourselves to him freely. God shows David that even through imperfect means, he remains his refuge. Again, Jonathan couldn't save him, but he was a tool in the hand of God. Even McCall's wicked actions to protect David were used by God to protect him, to be a refuge for him. It's not always a supernatural happening. It's not always a burning bush. Sometimes it's that friend who texts us and asks us how our day's going. That person that pops up in our minds, we say, I have to talk to this person about this thing. Don't miss the refuge that the Lord creates in our friendships. Husbands and wives, don't let your spouse be on the outside of your struggles and your plans. Walk through life together. I always look forward to hearing about the women's ministry prayer partners at this time of the year. Because it seems like it's always such a wonderful time of fellowship, of prayer together. 
And ladies, if you haven't signed up for it, I think you should, even though it's, I don't know, it's been a while, but you should still do it. On top of that, we have our Tuesday night prayer meetings that we've started that's just been really great. You know, people have been able to show up and pray together through hard things. Um, others have stayed for an hour or maybe for 15 minutes, but just finding some, taking some action, I should say, to find that refuge in Christ is incredibly beneficial. How will you do that this week?